Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to welcome my guest today, Jacob Brevard. Jacob, you have an amazing story of redemption. Jacob was down. He served 25 years in prison for murder. And he's done. He's doing amazing things right now. And that's one of the reasons I want to have you on here, Jacob. Well, thank you. Thank you. A big uh, pleasure to be here. And thank you for uh, allowing me to do this. Yes. No, it's my pleasure. You have so much energy and you're doing so many good things. And like I said, you really are a story of redemption. So um, I love profiling people that are doing amazing things and you're doing amazing things and you've really um, turned your, your life around. So we're going to examine that today. So thank you so much for being here. I'm very appreciative. Thank you. And you're doing amazing things also. So let, let's, we'll get into your story. So tell me where you were born and raised. So, uh, I was actually born in Newark, New Jersey, um, with a lot of challenges that uh, uh, people of color face as far as economics and uh, opportunities. Um, I was born uh, to a mother and father. My mother were, was a, a nurse, and my, my father was, uh, he was, he was, for lack of a better word, a convict. He was in and out of prison and um, uh, grew up in the projects, uh, too. I was uh, around four, three or four years old, uh, and then we moved to suburbia white suburbia um and i went to an uh, all white school it was 99% white um that was right before i came to california and that uh that's where a lot of my my issues started at believe it or not so so do you have any brothers and sisters i do i have two older sisters i, I i'm actually the baby uh, i have a sister that's 3 old 3 years older than me and i have a sister that is about a about 14 months older than me. Uh, one of my sisters lives in Anaheim and she's retired. And then my other sister's a dental assistant and she lives in Virginia. So you, you were born and raised in New Jersey, or at least, uh, at least you were, you were born there. So, yes. So did you ever have a relationship with your dad? Do you remember him at all? Just, you said, you said he was in prison. So is that, is that your earliest memories of him? Is that, and then he's kind of went out of your life. No, actually, I did have a relationship with my father. My father, uh, he was in the home for a minute. Um, not a real great guy, uh, but he was in the home for a minute. He always was providing. Uh, but I, he, he taught me a lot of bad things, and um, he really didn't have a trust for the system or how how America worked. Uh, everything was underground, and um, he passed that along to me. Uh, my father was dear until I was around seven or eight when um, – you know, the police came, kicked in the door one morning and took him, took him off to jail. And that's uh, about the time that uh, our relationship kind of uh, dissipated. So did you, had you already moved over to California? Do you remember what was your life like in New Jersey prior to coming to California? Why did you guys come to California? So, um, I, like I said, I, early on, I grew up in the projects and then um, uh, for whatever reason, we moved to suburbia. Um Later on, I found out uh, a lot of that came about because of my father's criminal activities. He was uh, uh, robbing whoever he was robbing or whatever he was robbing, and he was using that money to upgrade our lifestyle to a certain extent. Um, when I was like seven years old, the police came, kicked in the door, um, and a lot of things changed for me at that time. Um, my father was sent off to prison, and my mother moved us to California. It coincided with one another, so I'm pretty sure it was connected. So was your mother working? How did she know someone in California? What made her choose California? Uh, we had she has she has a cousin. Um, my my cousin Bing is her first cousin, and um, I guess it would be my second cousin. He was going to Long Beach State. She came out here to visit him, and um, she never came back. She came out here visit him. Then two months later, we were out here, um, and I've been in California ever since. And when you how old were you when you came over then? I was around seven, eight years old. And then what what was your, what do you remember from those times? Uh, well, I remember the, the transition, you know. Um, like I said, right before I came to California, I went to a predominantly white school. There was a lot of racism there, not from teachers or administrators, but from, from my peers. Uh, and I was always taught at that time that if someone uh, talks to you in a racial matter, to, to deal with it with physical um physical aggression um so between that and coming to california finding a whole new group of friends and having to re uh, kind of like reinvent myself and fit in um 
I had a lot of issues with that. You know, um, when I first came to California, a lot of people used to really uh, tease me and pick, uh, you know, pick on me because I had a, a heavy East Coast accent. And so I worked really hard to lose that accent. But in uh, in the process of doing so, I've also had a lot of issues with uh, people uh, who laughed at me and, and, and made fun of me. So. So you moved where? What city did you move to when you moved to California? We moved right here to Long Beach. I've been in Long Beach ever since I've been in California. I, I believe it or not, uh, besides uh, when I got out, I've never lived in another city in California. So you moved to Long Beach, and what was your life like growing up? You, you when did did you do well in elementary school? What was that like for you growing up? And were your sisters out here at the time? Yes, I. You know, I've always done pretty good in school. Uh, in fact, I was an A and B student for most of my for most of my uh, my schoolings. Uh, my issues at school always had to do with people, um, whether it was teachers or whether it was students. Um, and coming out here to California, um, it was it was a difficult transition. You know, it was, it was a it, it was a culture shock almost. It was life was just so different uh, than it was in New Jersey, and um, it was hard to fit in. And. When did some issues started popping up for you um, in elementary school or when was when did things start to unravel for you? You said you were having some problems here. What kind of problems were you having? Well, like I said, I, I mostly had problems with fitting in. Uh, when I first came here, I was uh, Jacob from New Jersey. Uh, well, they said New York, and I used to always correct them. I'm not from New York. I'm from New Jersey. Um, and then when I used to go to New Jersey, after a while, they used to say that I was Jacob from California, which which really, really uh, played a significant role in my life because after a while it felt like that I didn't belong anywhere. And that was my major draw to the gangs. Um, I knew that uh, if I joined this gang and I told somebody I was from this gang, that they would know exactly where I was from. There wouldn't be a debate of whether I was from the East Coast or the West Coast or whether I was from Newark or, or Long Beach. Um, if I'm from this gang, I'm definitely from Long Beach and um, not only from Long Beach, but the east side of Long Beach. And at that time, that was extremely important to me. And what was your relationship like with your mom and your sisters growing up? Well, you know, I had a really good relationship with my mom. My mom was a very, very caring person. Um, and so uh, she, she was there for me every step of the way. Um, the problem I had with her was she wasn't at home very often. I was kind of a latchkey kid. Uh, she was working a lot. Uh, and so my sister was tasked with, with, with kind of watching us. And at a certain age, uh, you know, her authority was like non-existent because she was my sister and not my mother. Um, I had a really good relationship with my older sister when I was younger. Um, and that's kind of, kind of deteriorated a little bit since I got out of prison. We're not as close as we used to be. Um, my middle sister, you know, I love her to death. Um, and uh, we still have a great relationship. Um, but we're more on the same level than my older sister and I. My older sister and I still, she's still like a parent sometime, and that that causes friction. Sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah. And so, when did did you were, financially were you guys go okay growing up, or was it out of struggle as well? And I'm sure that's why your mom was working so much. Yes, it, it 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 was a struggle. I mean, she provided all the things that we needed, all the necessities. We had clothing, we had food. Uh, we just didn't have a lot of the extra stuff that people had. And so, um, at a certain certain point in time, I felt obligated to help help the family out, and I, I turned to what my father taught me, which is the streets. And so, when what age did that start, and what kind of stuff? When you when you say you turned to the streets, what does that mean? So, uh, when I when I was around 12, 13 years old, uh, I, you know, I, I started off the right way. I started off selling candy. I started off selling newspapers, um, doing shoe shines, just out there, just trying to make some extra money to help the family out. Uh, but, uh, when I got about 14 or 15, that kind of turned crack cocaine came in. I started uh, selling drugs and, uh, really never giving the family any money. Uh, I would just, you know, uh, living high off the hog and destroying lives um, uh, by selling this this uh, this poison to my community. How did that start, though? Like, how did, did you meet some, with some folks on the street? And then, I mean, how did that whole start? Did you meet people at school or, or just, you know, just out in the community? And then you said, hey, I want to sell. Or did someone approach you? What, what was that like? 
Well, you know, I had I grew up with a, a certain group of people, and those people were, you know, they were gang members. They were out in the street, and at the time, I, I didn't consider myself a gang member, even though I was with gang members all the time. I had hadn't went through the initiation process, and so um, a lot of times we were doing like uh, muggings and stuff like that for a little change, and then um, through the gang, a lot of these guys start selling drugs and. Um, just because I was around them, I, I, I had access to them and start, start, uh, dibbling, dabbling, so to speak. And what gang was this specifically at the time? Uh, I was from a gang in Long Beach called Insane. That, that, they, that, did they affiliate with anybody? Yeah, they're Crips. Yeah, they're Crips. And, and, and what was that? You grew up in a time where there was a lot of, you know, animosity between <clears throat> the Crips and the Bloods and um, what was that like? And were you able to still engage in school? And what, did your mom know you were doing all this? No, my mom was oblivious. Uh, <laughs> she didn't know anything about gangs. Uh, she didn't know anything about the signs. Um, and that's when my grades started falling off a little bit. Um, and actually, before they fell all the way off, I dropped out. Uh, uh, and it was a turbulent time in my life where uh I was making enemies just because people lived in different parts of the city or wore different colors, said different words. Um, and so um, that that realization really became real one day when my mother asked me to go to the, the grocery store with her. And um, I told her, I said, Mom, I can't go over there. And she was like, wait, what are you talking about? Get in the car. We can ready to go to the grocery store. And um, uh, we went in the grocery store. And I, 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 I recall uh, running into some people from the other side of town. And so when I came out the store, um, luckily I was with my mother. They were outside waiting for me. And so um, they approached me and my mother's like, she didn't know what she, you know, she, she didn't know what was going on. But that day she realized that I had involved myself and stuff in something that limits my movement um, because um, she realized that when I told her I couldn't go over there, it had a lot to do with the gangs that I was involved with and the potential of violence that could be uh, aimed towards me. Uh, I was given a pass because I was with my mother. Uh, that type of stuff happened back in my day. It doesn't happen too much now. Um, but that's when life really got real and she started to understand uh, some of the stuff that I was involved in. And so you dropped out of school. Yeah, I dropped I dropped out of I dropped out of school, believe it or not. Uh I dropped out of school in eleventh grade. Um just you know, uh I was involved in too much criminal activity and because I liked the school. I really liked it uh going there. That's where all the kids was at. But um I was so involved in criminal activity that uh my days was at the park uh selling drugs and uh watching out for people, you know, doing shootings and robberies and just living a criminal lifestyle. And how much money were you making at this time? Well, you know, uh, I like to think I was making a lot of money, but when I look back, I really wasn't. And um, the money that I was making, I, uh, I was spending on unnecessary things like cars and jewelry and clothes and um, all the stuff that didn't really have any meaning. Um, and, and actually today, now that I have a job, I make more money today than I did when I was selling drugs. <laughs> you know, so, um, cause when you really look at the, what you're making in drugs, there's a lot of turnover. You got to re up with the drugs. You got to buy stuff for people cause you need people to be looking out for you. And it's just a lot. It's just a lot to that lifestyle. When you look back on that lifestyle now, and we're going to get into this more later. I mean, what think, what do you think drew you into that lifestyle? Well, like I said, the combination of the uh, of wanting to belong, I really wanted to belong to something. I really wanted to feel like I was a part of a uh, California society or the Long Beach culture. Um, that was that was the main draw. Um, and then there was financial gains, and then there was women. Um, and and you know, as a gang member, you do whatever you want to do. You know, so it it was no restraints. It was like um, if I wanted to rob the store, I would rob the store. If I if I wanted to go do a shooting, I would do a shooting. Um, and so um, there was a prestige or a perceived prestige that came with that. And so uh, between the, the sense of belonging and having this uh, encouragement of being somebody um, really was, was a strong draw to keep me into that lifestyle. Did, who were your role models at the time? Probably not the best role models, but who were they at the time? And 
what is your what was your mom thinking because your mom was probably worried about you because you weren't in school at the time she probably knew like you said that she had some insight and hey she's doing some stuff that you shouldn't be doing so who were your role models at the time and it could be like i said it doesn't necessarily be a good role model it can be bad role models and, and then I didn't have any good role models at that time. Um, my, my role models was like my older homeboys, you know, they, they were my role models. They, they were the one that taught me the game. Um, even though it was, it was, it was not a good, you know, they didn't teach me the right stuff. Uh, they taught me how to survive in the street. They taught me how to survive in jail. Uh, they told me the codes and the regulations to live by to keep me safe. Um, and that's what I did. I followed the rules and, um, uh, you know, did whatever I had to do to, to maintain that lifestyle. As far as my mother went, uh, when I dropped out of school, uh, she gave me an ultimatum. Um, like, uh, you can't stay in this house. If you ain't, if you're not working or in school, you can't live here. Uh, so you need to make a choice. Either you're going to go back to school, get a job, or you're going to leave. Uh, so I packed my stuff up and left. Uh, went out to the streets. Uh, she had moved out of Long Beach into Buena Park. Um, I I stayed right there in Long Beach and was in and out of jail uh, from camp to placement uh, to you name it, all the way up into prison. Um, but that, that's what I want to get into, Jacob. <clears throat> you said you moved out. Where'd you move? Did, were you homeless or you just you slept on people's beds? How'd that work? Well, when, you know, was the, when was the first time you were arrested? I had police so, contact. Okay, so uh, I was. You know, I was a gang member at this time, so I, I had plenty of places to stay. I would stay with my homeboy. And then, you know, like some in the neighborhood, you always have mothers that, you know, they're like everyone's mother. Um, so if you go by and say, hey, moms, I don't, you know, I don't, right now I'm, I don't have nowhere to stay. She'll find a place for you to stay, uh, give you something to eat and stuff like that. Uh, I started first getting arrested when I was 13, um, stealing cars, uh you know, stuff that I would consider that at that time I would consider minor. Now today I know it's not, uh, but at that time I consider breaking somebody's car minor. So um, I started going to jail for that grand theft auto, and it just it just kept progressing and progressing. And before you know it, it went from uh, stuff like that to robberies, uh, guns, drugs, shootings, and it just you know it just just got bad. So when you when what was your relationship like with? The police were you afraid of the police or it just didn't matter because your standing within the gang would be stronger over time depending on the, the crimes you were committing i mean what was it what was your kind of viewpoint of that did jail scare you you know um jail didn't scare me um my my my, my relationship with the police was formed with my when they came and got my father i remember them kicking in the door and i was asleep i was like i was i was like 7 years old and i remember waking up to a flashlight in the gun barrel um i jumped out of the bed and i seen all these guns and they were like hey stop it of course they noticed that i was a kid i got up and ran straight in the kitchen where i seen my mother and my sisters in there crying they were sitting at the table crying and the police had guns. They had pulled all these guns out. And I distinctly uh, remember my mother looking at me and telling me, um, your father is going to prison. Um, I didn't know what prison was at that time. Um, I had an idea that it was some some place that you didn't want to be, but I didn't know where nothing really about it. Um, later on, I had a hatred for the police. And after doing the work, I realized that it came from this incident. Um, because as a kid, you know, it's my father. And all I seen was a, a bunch of people in uniforms come and take him away. And as far as I was concerned, they did that for nothing. And it formed uh, it formed a hatred for the police uh, later on in life. And I guess you grew up at also a time where, you know, the rap industry was pushing songs out. Um, and I know you have a relationship with Snoop Dogg, and I think you said Warren G as well. Yes, yeah, Snoop Dogg, Warren G, Nate. It's it's funny, right? Because I told you about my mother's cousin, uh, the one that got her out here. Well, my mother's cousin is Snoop Dogg's little brother's father. So Snoop Dogg's little brother is my cousin, and so when I came out here, we we were immediately introduced, uh to his family and I, I was with them all the time. Um, and then, uh, Warren started hanging with us. Uh, Warren G started hanging with us and then Nate dog came and started hanging with us. Um, and so I grew up with those guys and, um, they were, they were part of my crew and 
Uh, we did a lot of stuff we shouldn't have did together. Uh, fortunately for them, they made it and didn't get caught. And how did the rap industry, I mean, the, the music was so much a part of an expression of what was going on in the community. Um, what was your relationship like with all of them as they moved on and you were kind of in the same situation? Well, for, for me and my generation, rap music was the voice of, you know, we came and we didn't really have a voice. We didn't really have a way to express some of the things that we were going, that was going on in our neighborhoods. Um, and rap music uh, presented that platform for people to kind of tell, tell their story. Um, and, you know, like, when I was out and we used to hang on the block and they used to be rapping and stuff, we never took anything serious. Um, and then I got to, I, I, I committed a murder and went to prison. Um, and then another friend of mine that hung with us, uh, ended up getting caught with a lot of uh, cocaine and ended up going to the feds. And, uh, then, uh, that's when, that's when Snoop Warren and, and Nate decided that, uh, crime was not their profession and decided to make an album and get rich. <laughs> I know you guys, are, I know you guys maintain a relationship or a friendship today. And let me ask you, what was your, what was your experience in jail? Like we'll get into your prison experience later, but when you were inside there, what was the, di the, the dynamics, the politics that goes, goes on inside of a jail and, yeah, can you get into that a little bit? So, like, the county jail was the worst time I did, period. Los Angeles County Jail was, like, the toughest time, period. Um, it was really the first time that I I, I really, really was faced with uh, the racism part of gang banging. You know, before I went to the county, uh, you know, I didn't have any problems with any uh, brown people or any other race, so to speak. But once I got in the county jail, I realized that um, it was all racial. Um, it was black and brown fighting each other, and it was just um, the politics of, of 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 jail is who, what race is going to be the, the strongest race and control everything, the drugs, the money, everything that's coming into the institution. So um, it it was really a hard life knowing, like, because there was people that I really knew, um, guys that I really knew. We were friends. I used to be at their house. They used to be at my house. Now we're in a county jail and we can't even talk to each other. Um, and so that's when it really starts, you know, life, the gang banging life start really getting real for me. And how did people divide up? You said there's a politics. What is, what's, how do people divide up? I know it starts in county jails. It's kind of interesting because California is one of the few States that still, divides up by race in the jails and the prisons it's very unusual because most of the country doesn't do that um can you give me a kind of describe that a little bit for me so uh inside the county jail uh we were not only separated by race but we were also separated by gangs so you would come in and then you would have the mexicans you would have the blacks of course you would go on the side where you were from whether it was mexican or the black um and then within there, you it would be divided by Bloods and Crips. For Blacks, it would be divided by Bloods and Crips. And then within those cars, it would be divided by gangs. Um, and so there was multiple levels of uh, of uh, of hierarchy, so to speak. Um, and so they controlled really what was going on in there. They controlled the narrative. And we you just follow suit. Um, we used to say that we had a career. And so... Uh, that was the early part of the career. You just you was a foot soldier and you followed what was told of you and did the things that was expected of you uh, to stay in good standings. So explain that a little bit. What is a foot soldier and what do you have to do to stay in good standing? A foot soldier is he's what we call a torpedo. He's someone who's uh who doesn't he's not really involved in the politics and the decisions of the politics. Uh, but he's going to be the one that's going to uh, carry out any missions that need to be carried out. Um, so here it is. You have guys that's older, that's been around the system. They're kind of controlling stuff. And so if one of these guys say, hey, this dude need to be stabbed, they put it in the foot soldier's hands and, um, you know, um, whatever needs to be done is done. If he does not do it, then he becomes the next target. Wow. So there was a lot of pressure on you at a young age. It was very well, you know, at, at that time, I didn't consider it to be pressure because that's what I, I thought I wanted. Um, and so uh, for a lot of times when when I was uh, involved in stuff in the county jail and stuff, I volunteered for that stuff because I thought it was going to uh, booster my standings within the, uh, the criminal organization. 
And, and how old were you when you picked up your commitment offense, meaning your offense that sent you to prison? And can you kind of describe what happened about around that uh, incident? Yeah, so I, w- I was 19. I had just turned 19. Um, it happened 11 days after my 19th birthday. Um, and so uh, that morning, I, I kind of knew something. I was going to do something stupid because um, I, I had an AK-47. And the minute I picked that AK-47 up, it empowered me. I wanted to shoot it. And um, I knew that, you know, that I was probably going to be shooting at someone. I didn't particularly think that I, I would be uh, committing a murder. Um, which sounds crazy, but it, it's true. Um, and so the, the events of that day was, you know, um, they were really crazy. Someone came to my house. I had a friend of mine. He came to my house. Um, he had just got robbed uh, by some rival gang members. Uh, one of the gang members who who robbed them was someone that I was very familiar with. Uh, I had knew him from school. I had been with him in jail. And we had a decent relationship, uh, even though we were rivals. Um, so I told him like, give me an opportunity to reach out to this person and maybe, um, I can get your stuff back. So I called him, we had a great conversation. Uh, and then I told him like, Hey, you robbed my, your people robbed my home, but I need my stuff back. Um, he said, okay. Uh, but then when I went over there, um, it didn't go exactly as planned and, um, guns was drawn and I started shooting. I had a fully automatic AK, um, uh, I shot approximately 40 times, um, killing Mr. Randolph and shooting five other people. Um, at the time, my mental state was, you know, um, I didn't really care about myself. I didn't, you know, it was more important to me to be in good standings with the gang than it was uh, to preserve human life. Um, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, but it's it's really true. And. At that time, what, what was going through your mind after it transpired? Did you do you leave you left the scene? And um, I can tell this, I can tell even talking about this with me is kind of emotional for you. Yeah. Um, and you know, and that's what that's what I mean about you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you in terms of redemption. I can tell you're tearing up on me as you're speaking, which you know, I know this, this, it must be difficult to talk about. So thank you so much for being on here. Um what what was going through your mind afterwards? Um I, I this is this is hard for me to admit, Fig, but um, I really had a sense of accomplishment afterwards. Um, I really felt like I had I had uh, took a major step um, in solidifying myself inside the gang and moving up. Um, I it, the remorse for, for life at that time was not there. I you know I just you know it, it's just I. I I'm low. I can't even, t- I can't, it's hard for me to even, I just, I just felt like I, I had accomplished something. I didn't even think about the person's life that I took. I just, I just felt like, you know what, this is my stepping stone and uh, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be one of the shot callers sooner or later. And um, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. But that's and, the truth. No. And I, that's why you're on here is the honesty in it and just kind of how you, how you've evolved to the person you are today. So, how did you get caught? So, like I said, one of the guys knew me. I had a I had a prior relationship with. So, after the shooting, uh, he told them my gang name, which got them to the uh, the gang files, and um, eventually led to a positive identification by one of the survivors of the crime. And so, how did the arrest transpire? And so. Uh, the next, the next morning, I, I went into my neighborhood. I was driving. I went and picked one of my girlfriends up, and I was driving through my neighborhood, and everybody kept sl- flagging me down saying, man, they're, they're kicking in everybody's spot looking for you. They got your picture. They got a picture of your car. Um, and so I went to one of the, my, my homeboy's mother's house. She was like the hood mother um, and told her that I needed to get out. I had, I had a few thousand dollars in my pocket. I told her I needed to, her to take me out of the viewing area so I can get on the bus and uh, disappear, uh, which she agreed to. Um, however, um, because I had parked my car out on the streets, uh, Long Beach police had tracked down where my car was. They didn't know exactly where I was at, but they knew where the car was, so they had the car under surveillance. And so when I came out to move the car, um, I was quickly arrested. Um, I tried to run, uh, didn't work out too well. Um, and I was taken into custody and, uh, 
uh, sent to prison, rightfully so. And what was the trial like for you? The trial was extremely difficult for me. It was a, um, I had a whole bunch of emotions during the trial. Um, there were people there that were supporting me. I had a, one of my, 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 uh, female friends, uh, she came and gave me an alibi that wasn't true. Um, and so like, it didn't bother me until she got on the stand and they start to cross examine her and I can see the stress on her face. And I was like, man, you know, um, she shouldn't be up there. Um, but I, at the time, like, you know, I thought that was part of the game, you know, it's like, uh, you have to support me to help me get out of this because I did this for the neighborhood, even though today I know that's not true. Um, so did the gang support you through any of this? You know, um, I, I say no. They they would say yeah. I would say no. Um, the way that the gang supports you is not really support. Um, like um, they gave me phone call. They gave me numbers to call where I can call other people. They never really sent me any money. I have some of my friends that are within the gang that sent me money, um, but the gang itself, uh, all it did was uh, it provided so called protection on the inside, which um, really. It's not protection because you're the one with the knife in your hand, uh, but just the name that you're from this organization um, is supposed to provide some type of protection for you. Um, so it, the gang didn't do a lot for me. It didn't support me in, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, it, but it did give me an avenue or a platform to stand on when I got to prison where I wasn't uh, riding by myself or solo. And how did you feel and what went through your mind when the sentencing went down and how much time did they sentence you to? So uh, I had went to trial for uh, two attempted murders. I had a murder in five attempts and I've lost uh, and I was waiting to be sentenced. And then I went to trial on the murder in another courtroom uh, and got a hung jury. Um, once I got the hung jury, they offered me a deal for 15 to life. It was the first deal that they had ever offered me. Um, and so I, I refused to take that deal because they was going to sentence me separately for the murder and the attempted murders in separate courtrooms. The next day I went in there, they offered me a deal for 25 to life and they was going to run, uh, the two attempted murders or the two life sentences for the attempted murders concurrent. Um, and then I ended up getting 20 years, which the judge stayed. Uh, so I took that deal and, um, I was sentenced to 25 years of life. Uh, and when I read the transcripts, this is people, this sounds crazy, but when I, when I read the transcripts, um, the judge actually did me a, a, a major favor. He really, really, uh, uh, I really think that he took in consideration, um, the person that I was and didn't just sentence me, uh, because, you know, um, he could have just ran everything bow-legged, uh, I'd have been in prison to this day. probably would have died in prison. Um, also, uh, he, he he made it where even if I came back on appeal on attempted murders, that the most I will be, uh, the most that I can get is 25 to life. So that was a controlling number. And uh, fortunately, I, I, I was able to redeem myself and make it back to society. What went through your mind when you first went to prison? And can you tell me what prisons that you went to? You know, uh, when I first went to prison, I was scared to death. I think Old Folsom was the most scariest place I ever seen. Uh, we was coming down there, and I started seeing them gray, the granite walls, and I said, "Man, what is that? It looked like an old dungeon." And a guy on the bus said, "Man, that's Folsom." And I said, "Man, I'm not going in there." And he said, "Oh, you going in there?" Um, and so Old Folsom was like, "Well, really, New Folsom was the first place that I, I went to, which is." right across the street from each other um and it was it was terrifying uh new to this day i say new Folsom is the worst prison i've ever been to um uh it was it was terrifying uh everything was separated by race and by gangs and they had certain areas that you can walk in and you couldn't walk in and um if you walked in a certain area uh it was an automatic green light meaning that uh the, the whatever gang that was can can attack you um you had to have security to use the bathroom or the yard to take a, it. It was terrible. Um, it was really a, a rough spot to be. Um, and from there, um, of course, I, I ended up in Pelican Bay. Um, uh, I was a young person in prison, which means I was a frontline uh, soldier. I ended up at Pelican Bay. 
uh, after my stay at Pelican Bay, I, I ended up opening up Calipat. I think I was at Pelican Bay for maybe uh, a year, two or 13, 14 months. And then I went to Calipatria to open Calipatria up. And um, uh, that was no different than uh, New Folsom. It was a war zone, a lot of uh, assault staffs, staff, staff assaults, a lot of uh, 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 people who are incarcerated, assaulting other people who are incarcerated. Um, it was really a rough life. Um, I left there and I went to Corcoran. Um, uh, I guess that's the life of a person that's involved in gangs and in prison. And, from, and so from Corcoran, I stayed there for about a year and a half. Uh, and from there, I opened Pleasant Valley up. Um, Pleasant Valley was a good institution, uh, but I wasn't mentally prepared for it. I had the wrong mentality. So, of course, I was down there destroying lives. Um, trying to recruit for the gang and, um, you know, just doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. Um, when I left there, I went to Ironwood um, and, and Ironwood things start, that's when things start to change for me. Uh, I started taking, I took my very first self-help group. Um, and that's when the desire to change started. I started, uh, I didn't make any changes, but the desire was there. Jacob, how old were you? So when you, so you served 25 years in prison. How old were you when you st- when you had some insight on saying I need to change in order to get out? Or was there ever a point where you said, I'm never going to get out and you gave up? Or what was that like for you, that process? And what got you to the what do you think got you to the place where you wanted to change and you started to have some hope that you actually might get out? So, um when I first went to prison, I thought I had an option because they told me, you know what, take this deal. You'll be out in 15, 16 years. Okay. I took the deal. I got to prison. When I got to prison, uh, it was 1990 and it was guys in there from 71, 72, uh, with seven to life. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, man, don't you going to die in here. And, um, of course I started acting accordingly. I, I, I didn't think I would ever get out about 15 years in, um, my mother passed away and, um, that changed my life. Um, at that moment, you know, after crying all night, I knew that um, I didn't want to be seen as the person that I was because I was I was going to be related to her. So it's like you see me, you think of my mother and think that she raised this terrible person and she didn't. Um, and so, like I say, change was difficult for me. Uh, getting away from the gangs was difficult for me. But uh, I think what really, really started me started my change of me wanting to change was I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine and he told me, he said, just think, man, all we got to do is outlive this sentence, man. We came at a young age, 50 years. If we put in 50 years, we'll be 69, bro. Cause me and him went to school together and we were the same age. He said, we'll be 69. He said, we're going to beat this sentence. And then that's when I started saying, you know what, maybe I do need to change a little bit, uh, having the opportunity uh, to get out but I never thought that I would. Um, my change was based was strictly based on being a better person. Um, that's that's what, what fueled me to change was I wanted to be a better person because I was a representation of my mother. And um, as a result of me wanting to be a better person, I got out of prison. So what kind of classes and what did you do? What steps did you take to get out? And, 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 I, and there's two things I got to ask about that in terms of you started taking self-help and treatment classes, but how did you move out of the gang as well? So, um, I started moving out the gang. Uh, I can't, I got, I got out of the hole and I started, uh, I, I told myself I wasn't going to deal with the gang anymore. Um, but of course when uh, I got out, they was like, Hey man, uh, come to the table. And sure enough that day I was at the table, but there was a difference. When I went to the table this time, I didn't feel safe. Um, I got there and these were guys that I'd known for, for forever. And these was guys that I was willing to make sacrifices for, stab, kill, do anything for. I got to the table and I, I started, I just didn't feel safe. I started feeling like everyone was plotting on me. And um, I knew in my mind that I wanted out. And I thought that cause I knew that they also knew. And so I was really uneasy around them. And so um, I started taking the self-help groups that was a way for me to stop going to the yard. You know, I was like, well, if I'm in group, I don't have to be on the yard so I can feel safer. Um, and so I started going to all these groups where I didn't have to go to the yard. And then eventually um, 
by me taking all these groups and start doing all this positive stuff within the institution, believe it or not, a lot of the people from my gangs, they stopped hanging around me. They didn't want to be around the positive stuff that I was doing. And so one day I went to the table and told them like, Hey bro, um, um, I'm done, man. I'm trying to get out of prison. I, you know, I done made a lot of sacrifices and, you know, um, I feel like I, you know, I, I deserve to have an opportunity to be free. And, um, I was told basically, um, you know, first they asked me, was I denouncing? And, um, you know, that's a trick question on the yard. <laughs> so I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not denouncing. I'm just saying that I'm not going to be active anymore. Um, if you're going to be, if you're going to be involved in anything, I'm not going to be active anymore. And so, um, they told me, uh, that I was a citizen and see being a citizen, that means no criminal activity, no drugs, uh, no criminal activities. Um, and so I, I, I agreed to that and I stuck to it. And so that that carries over even today while I'm on the, on the street. Uh, no criminal activities keep me separated from the gangs. So do you ever run into anybody on the outside that says, hey, man, I'm glad you turned your life around and I know you're a citizen now. And what how are you respected on the street now? Well, you know, um, I'm. I don't really have any issues on the street. I don't hang around my, my old gang members anymore, but I don't have, like if I run into them on the street, they don't really have any issues with me. Um, Cause I, you know, I, I haven't done anything that's out of their code. I just, uh, I just don't partake anymore. And the more that I've been involved in what I've been doing since I've been in prison, uh, the more that I, people come to me and say, Hey man, you know, uh, I'm really proud of you, man. I'm glad that you made the decisions that you made. And I'm glad that you helping the homies, uh, as they put it, um, get out of prison. Um, so like, I think, I think getting away from the gangs has a lot to do with you changing your moral fiber. And, um, when you change your moral fiber fiber, I don't think you have to get away from a lot of gang members. They'll get away from you because they'll know they'll see the change. And can you tell me how, okay, so you went in at, you went in at 19 and then you were going to all these different prisons and you were still kind of involved with the lifestyle. I want to get the kind of a timeline frame here. And how old were you when you, when you decided to move on and become a citizen, as you would say? I was 35. I was 35 years old when I decided to move on and, and, and become a citizen. And, and that was a gradual process. It's not like it happened overnight. Uh, that's when the initial steps uh, was made. I started taking all these groups, stopped being on the yard so much. And then uh, the executive director of ARC, who, which is an organization I work for right now, uh, Sam Lewis, one day uh, he was uh, a rival gang member. And one day he came out to the yard and told everyone to not call him by his gang name, but call him Sam. And um, that was really, to me, it was heroic. And um, um, I followed that. I followed his footsteps in telling people to start calling me Jacob. Um, and that was the first major step that I took to get away from the gang lifestyle. So you were about 35, you said you started to, to get really in, in, involved with self-help groups. What kind of groups did you get involved with? if you can name those groups and then what was, was there any one person you, you just mentioned, Sam, was there any one person that kind of turned it around for you and you were really able to use that class to, to do some uh, introspection search on yourself, kind of look at yourself critically. I think, I think initially um, I took a lot of classes initially. I, I, you know, I took classes like breaking barriers. Uh, they had stuff like, um, uh, the criminals and gang members anonymous, uh, the emotional intelligence, uh, 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 cornerstone, which was one of the great groups because it really gave me my facilitation skills. Uh, but I think the groups that had the, the biggest impact on me was, uh, alternative to violence, uh, project AVP, uh, really loved their setup, loved the community, um, loved the Quakers, uh, even though the Quakers, you know, they, they created the first prison here in America. Um, but I, I love the Quakers. They were really, really helpful and profound in my, in my transformation. Um, and the other one was a group called the victim offender education group Vogue. Um, that group there, uh, cause it was the first time that I really, really, really got to understand the impact of my actions on not just the person directly, but on society as a whole. Um, and I think that that's the group that really 
it, it really changed me. I had already I had already been in the process of change, but I think that group transformed me uh, because after that group, I started to realize that like uh, this my my crime touched more than just the uh, the person who was directly affected. What about the 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 doctor who uh, operated on this man half the night trying to save his life and happened to come out and tell his family, you know what? Um, he didn't make it and his family blamed him for not being able to save him. Um, you know, he has to take that home to his very family and it, you know, uh, the wave just keeps going on and on and on. And so that group re really, really helped me see that it, the magnitude. And so, you know, it's interesting you say it when you talk about like kind of making amends <clears throat> and having insight on the impact that you had on the victim. Have you made amends with that? And what have you done to make amends with that? Make peace with that? Because that's part of the process of, you know, of, you know, discovery and, and growth and eventually led to you getting out. So, you know, while I was inside, I was always told not to contact the victims, um, no direct contact. Um, so I, 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 I initially, I wrote remorse letters and sent them to Sacramento to Victim Services and asked them to forward the letters. Um, they sent me a letter back, said they'd keep them on file. And if, if the uh, survivors of the crime uh, was to ask anything about me, they would send it to them. That was that didn't sit well with me. So I wrote the district attorney's office and um, asked the district attorney, can he forward the letters to, to, to the survivors of crime? Um, and in response, uh, one of the families of the, the, the one of the people who got shot, uh, they reached out to me and um, told me that they forgave me um, and that because in the letter I told them that uh, I had went to school, I had got a degree, I had was doing a lot of work with youth inside of prison, and I had told them that um, I realized that all my gain, gains uh, came at the expense of, of of Mr. Randolph's life and that I won't take that for granted. And so they reached back out to me and told me that they forgave me and, uh, and, and, you know, really, really encouraged me to continue on my path. Um, and they were also someone that said, you know, they were really religious people. And they told me that, uh, if I continue to, uh, to treat people kindly, that, uh, God will make a way for me to, to get back out here on the streets, uh, and continue to work. And that's exactly what happened. So you started, you said at about 35 and, how old were you when, when you got out? And what was that a difficult transition for you? Because you were gone for 25 years. I'm wondering how did the world change in that 25 years? It must have just so much has happened over those 25 years. What was that transition like for you? So uh, I went to I went to prison 11 days after my 19th birthday. I got out of prisons uh, a month and a half, almost two months uh before my 44th birthday um <laughs> and so um life for me it was extremely difficult because um i was a new person and i had i i i had never been in the world as jacob um since i was 13 i've always been my gang moniker um and so i was really really terrified and then i don't have a lot of i didn't have a lot of family support out here i hadn't talked to my older sister in like 10 years uh my other sister was in virginia she you know i mean she could do what she could but um you know she couldn't provide me with housing and nothing most of my family is back east so um i was really worried like where am i gonna go uh, i can't turn to the gang anymore um so uh it was really really challenging for me but i was determined to do the right thing and um i was faithful that everything would fall in place So tell me, what was that transition like? What changed for you when you got out in terms of like actual real world? What was the, the biggest shock for you when you got out? Like what had changed and like, oh my God, I can't believe this is uh, that you're out. It must have been weird getting in the car and, and how the world changed so much. What was that like for you? Um, man, it's, it's, I can't even put it in words. I was, I was so elated, but the world had changed so much. Um, I'm still adjusting to the world. I've been out for eight years and I'm still adjusting to a lot of new stuff out here, especially the technology. Uh, but, uh, that was the, the most amazing thing to me was the technology. I had a, a I had a running with a soda machine, <laughs> uh, and, uh, I went into a wing stop and, um, 
uh, I, we was getting chicken. I had never ate at Wingstop. None of this stuff, none of that stuff was around when I when I got out. So they're bringing me to these restaurants, and I go in here, and they give me a cup, and I go to the soda machine, I put the cup in there, and nothing happens. And it never dawned on me that the machine was touchscreen. So I'm sitting here, and I'm looking crazy. I'm punching the machine, you know, and the lady's like, what are you doing? I'm like, the soda won't come out. <laughs> she, just, she pushes the button, boom, and it was like, I really need to uh, get with technology. Um, I'm, I'm really behind. And um, the other thing that was really, really um, challenging for me was, to, was yeah, was that phone. Um, I got a phone, and I didn't even know how to turn the phone on. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to put it, I, I didn't have any electronical de electronical devices while I was inside. So when I got out, I didn't know how to turn up. I didn't know anything. And so uh, I really struggled with the phone. I'm still learning how to use this phone because these phones are these phones are computers. Uh but I'm a lot better now. Uh, and and also with choices. Uh, one of the things that I think really hurts people after doing an extended period of times is it's hard to make a, a decisive decisive decision uh i go into the supermarket i wanted some chips it's like man all these different types of chips in prison i got like three chips to choose from now i got like a hundred and it's hard to, to make a decision and that that's something small that also carries over into your life where you're not really decisive about what you want because you've been told all your life when to eat how to eat uh, when to go to sleep, when to get up. Um, and you don't realize how, how much of an impact that has on you until you get out and you have to make those decisions on your own. Have you ever had to face and how did you face the stigmatism of, of being in prison that long? Because when you go try to get a job or when you try to explain to people anything and there's a big gap in your life of 25 years, how do you explain that and what do you say? Well, you know, I, I I was honest with people, and people were were, were extremely kind to me. Uh, I got out and I went down to the Social Security's office to get my Social Security card, and um, uh, I didn't know my number, and the number that was provided to me by CDCR was incorrect. It was off by one number, um, and so I go down there, and this lady is like, "Who are you?" And then I'm trying to tell her, and she's like, "We don't have anything. There's no no existence of you at all. I never never had a job." <laughs> she was like, "She was like, what?" And so I told her, like, I, "I've been in prison for the last 25 years, and I'm trying to come out here and do the right thing." Uh, and she was extremely helpful for me, help helpful to me. She she helped me get my my social security card, which started me on my my uh, mission to get a job. I went into Goodwill. And I love Goodwill today uh, for this. I went to Goodwill and um, asked for an application, talked to the manager there, told her my situation, and she uh, encouraged me to apply, to apply for the position. And before you know it, I was hired and given a store manager job. So uh, I didn't really have those type of struggles. And I, if you can explain what you do now, you I, I know you've, you're no longer on parole. You've, you've, you're a very, very successful um I know that you go back into on your own time, you volunteer a lot of time and you go back into you go and you work with juveniles at the juvenile detention centers. You go to jails on your own time. In addition, your job right now um, in a nonprofit, I believe, organization is you you travel the prisons throughout the state. And what is your role in in your current position and uh, who do you work for now? So I work for the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, also known as ARC, and my role is the director of inside programs. Basically, um, I direct the program that allows for previously incarcerated uh, men, mostly lifers, to go back in and run character development and self-help groups uh, for the people inside in the hopes of helping them uh, figure it out and get back out here and be uh the leaders of their family. Um, one of the things that, like, I, I like to volunteer in juvenile hall and the camps and in the uh, DJJ, the uh, Division of Juvenile Justice, which is closing. Um, I like to do that because I, I tell these kids that, um, unlike other adults in their life, you can't get rid of me. Um, if you're in juvenile hall, I come. If you go to YA or uh, do uh, uh, juvenile justice, uh, the Department of Juvenile Justice, I'm coming. You go to prison. You're still going to see my face when you get out. I'll be right here for you. Um, and so I want them to, to know that uh, myself and people like myself in these organizations, uh, 
we believe in them and we care for them and, and we're not going to disappear. We're not going to continue the cycle of, of, of falling out of someone's life when, when things get hard. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I like going to juvenile hall in uh, DJJ. So what is your message to people in gangs now, or when you go into these institutions, even lifers, what is your message of hope that you give them to try to move out of those situations? So uh, when I talk to people in prison, most of the time I'm talking to them about value. How much do they value their life? Um, um, and just sitting down and really breaking it down frame by frame, uh, they can see that they're not valuing their lives. And I think just planting that seed to, to um, is who's, what's more important, the gang, your life, and your, or your families. What's more important? What needs to be a priority? When you start breaking stuff like that down, um, I think they start to get it. And then I, I have a thing with, with uh, I play with semantics with the words loyalty and commitment because most gang stuff is based on loyalty. And um, loyalty is blind and it requires a sacrifice. Um, a commitment, um, in my, my definition of commitment, uh, the, the, what separates loyalty and commitment is in the commitment, you always have a person's best interest at heart. Uh, so like if I'm loyal to you, you do something wrong. I, I just go with you. But if I'm committed to you, I tell you, hey, you're, that's wrong because my commitment to you is to make you the best version of yourself. And so I talk to them about being committed and not loyal um, and understanding uh, that whatever is best for them is best for whoever's in that circle. If it's not best for somebody in your circle, that person shouldn't be in your circle. And who are your role models now? I know you didn't have any. I mean, you had some of the, some, we talked about that. You can have good role models and bad role models and the importance of having good ones versus bad ones. Do you have any role models now? So one of my, one of my biggest role models is Malcolm X. Um, and the reason why is because um, he had the ability to change when he was wrong. And so I really admire that, you know, he was, he was a petty, he was a petty criminal in Massachusetts, went to prison, taught himself how to read, uh, found religion. Uh, turned his life from a criminal to more of a, a moral standing type lifestyle. Uh, then even within the religion, when he found out that, the, that a lot of things that he was being told in the religion was untrue um, or not based in facts, um, he also shifted and made another change. And um, to me, that's that's admirable uh, to be able to, to uh, know when you're wrong and to do something about it, because that's not sometimes it's a lot easier just to, to stay in the, in, 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 in the, uh, in in the wrongness so to speak if if i were to ask you like you divert you today jacob what would what would you today if you had the opportunity to talk to a 10 year old version of you or a 14 year old version of you what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself oh uh, i would tell i would tell the young version of myself uh to stay in school uh, don't worry about fitting in. Um, you are special. You, you, you know. I was so worried about fitting in, but you, you were, you were built. To, uh, you were made to stand out. So don't worry about uh, fitting in, and uh, just to be patient and, and understand people, be kind with people. I think uh, a lot of my issues came because I was short with people. I didn't really value people because I didn't value myself. So um, that would be the biggest thing is to treat people right, uh, because I'm, I'm a true believer that if you treat people right, everything else will fall into place. This is going to be a weird question. What's the worst thing about prison that you experienced that you'd never want to feel again? And what was the best thing about prison? Uh, the worst thing about prison, hands down, was uh, was the isolation from the people that I love. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really no way to put it in words how you feel. It's like um, my mother died when I was 30. My mother died when I was 34. I didn't see it. Last time I seen it, she was 19. I was 19. Um, and so that separation and, and losing that, that, that feeling that, that, to, that togetherness feeling, I think that was the worst part of prison. Uh, the best part of prison is that um, I met some great people in prison, believe it or not. Um, I, I really met some great men in prison, um, some re really caring people, uh, some really smart people. Um, um, I, you know, that, that was the best part of it. And it, it sounds crazy, but really, there really is some, some really genuine and authentic, uh, great, awesome people who've made bad choices that are in prison. So 
as I said earlier, what do you do? What do you, what do you think is the most important thing for people that want to get out? Especially you have the long-term offenders. Um, what do they need to do to get out? And do you give them your model? And what do you see as the biggest problem or the biggest impediment for some people getting out? Uh, the, the biggest impediment for people getting out is is being worried about what others are going to say and think about you. Uh, it's it's really hard to be uh to be yourself, to be an individual in a place where that's frowned upon. Everything is we. Uh, you know, when you're when you're in the gang inside prison, um, they tell you it's always we. It's no eyes. It's always we us uh, because you have the family behind you, as they say. Um, but that's not really true. I think to get out of prison, you have to be an individual um, and you have to live as a free person. I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people in prison, they keep they have this. Well, when I get out, um, you won't get out unless you start acting like a free person while you're inside and acting as a free person. Um, you know, I walked around. And I picked up trash on the yard. I told people when they were wrong, um, you know, things that I disagree with. I let them know, like, hey, when I was in the kitchen, um, I didn't allow people to, to steal. You know, I was the lead man in the kitchen. I didn't allow people to steal out the, uh, the out the pots, you know. And, then you know, they'd be like, hey, you're acting like the police. And it's like, no, I'm doing what's right, bro. I'm trying to get out of prison. And so I have to do what's right. And so I wouldn't let people steal out the pot. Um I just I think you have to, to live as a person, uh, a free person to be free. And this is kind of another kind of interesting question. I'm just wondering, has your vision or view of the police changed? I know what your vision was when because you're working in institutions now. So your interactions with the police are a lot in, in law enforcement. How has that changed for you? Well, um, I objectify law enforcement. Um, I, I put them all in one boat. Uh, now that I, I work more closely with them, I realize that they're individuals. And, you know, you have good ones, you have bad ones, you have so-so ones. But I also realize that they're there to do a job and, and they're human. And, um, you know, um, they're not there to oppress. I, I used to take everything personal. And it's like now I see it's like uh, it's not really a target on me. He's doing what he thinks is, is the best thing to do. Um, and sometimes that's against what I I may have think is the best thing to do. Uh, but my, my, my view of the police has changed dramatically. I, I really see them as um, as as an organization that that's here to keep to keep a uh, um, peace and to keep keep us from going into chaos. So um, I no longer have any issues with law enforcement, um, but I'm no longer doing wrong either. So. <laughs> So let me ask you a few. Um, let me ask you a few other little the fun questions. Is uh, what does Jacob do for fun now? Uh, you know what? I'm really simple. Uh, I like to watch sunsets. Uh, I like to go to the beach and uh, just listen to the waters and the waves. Um, I like going hiking. Uh, I, I really like doing the small stuff that I wasn't able to do in, in prison. One of my favorite activities, believe it or not, is watching traffic. Uh, I, I just love to watch cars go by, <laughs> you know, they're just, um, it's to me is a sense of freedom because for years I, I didn't get to see that. So, uh, and I love being around kids because there was no kids in prison. What was that like the first time for you when you went to the beach? Man, and so like to me, the beach is a symbol of freedom. So uh, when I got out and I went to the beach, it was like, man, I'm really out here, man. It's like, I'm really, really, really free. Um, because uh, I don't care what prison you're in, you'll never see a beach in prison, <laughs> you know. And so um, it was really, uh, uh, you know, like affirmation that um, I had transformed my life and that it was, the new chapter was getting ready to begin. And um, for me, that was uh, that that was it was challenging. It was scary, but it was something that I was really looking forward to. If you could meet one person in the world and you could choose one person you'd like to meet, what would you say to him? Uh, the person, it, of course, for me, it would be Obama, and uh, and I would I would ask him um, what one advice he would have for anybody for success. One thing he could tell anybody on their road to success. I I would like to know that because he came from a community organizer organizer to be the president of the United States. So uh, obviously, he did some good stuff. 
and, 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 you know, another thing that I use with the guys in size, Fig, it's just a, a, a quick side note is that, like, I always tell them, do you think you can get out of prison, uh, get out of prison and be the president of the country? And, you know, everyone says no. And then I always point out Nelson Mandela. He did 27 years, became the president when he got released. So anything is possible. I agree with you there. Here, here. Uh, what's your guilty food pleasure? Ice cream. I eat ice cream all day, and I'm diabetic. I ain't supposed to, so I have to sneak and eat it. <laughs> what's your favorite music? Uh, believe it or not, I like I like oldies, um, you know, old uh, old soul type music. That's my favorite. Then uh, will be the R and B and the hip hop. Uh, your dream trip? My dream trip. Uh, I, I want to travel around the United States. Uh, I, I would like to see the country as a whole. Go to all the parks and um, just see see what our country has to hold. And what do you want to be remembered for, Jacob? When when you're no longer on this earth, what do you want people to remember about you? I want people to remember that I, I really care for people. Um, I really care for them. I really love people. And uh, I would like to, you know, I have a saying, that I, I would rather for all the people to make it before me um, because I know if they make it, they'll leave the door open for me. So um, I really, really enjoy people. And Jacob, I want to tell you, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You know, I love talking to you. You're doing amazing things. Thank you for so much work you're doing out in the community. Um, if anyone wants to get a hold of you to talk about, you know, your journey um, and if they're having difficult times and, you know, getting out of prison and just with their road, and I'm sure there's some folks, um, you know, we have listeners all over the world. So what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, you can, get, you can uh, email me at uh, J Brevard, which is J B R E V as in Victor A R D at A R C dash C A dot org. Or um, you can you can also uh, call me. Um, um, I have a uh, I have two cell phones, but I have a work cell phone. My work cell phone number is five six two two nine zero three three five nine. Um, and just let me know that you 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 uh you heard heard whatever you heard on the uh, on on the hyper guy show, and um, I'm I'm there to assist you. I'm there to be of service. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to today's show. If you like the show, give it a thumbs up. It's uh, available on all podcast platforms. Again, thank you so much. Keep learning, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye.